You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. It's a long way to Tipperary. It's a long way to go. It's a long way to Tipperary. To the sweetest girl I know. Hello, everyone. And welcome to History of the Great War, Episode 51. Before the episode begins, I would like to thank Holger from Frankfurt for his donation this week. He also sent along some really cool translated German soldier letters from the war. Seeing the images of the originals, I have no idea how he possibly read the handwriting. Also, I have a big correction to make from last week, as pointed out by listener David from Seattle. Last episode I said, and I quote, Nelson could have probably figured out what a captain was trying to say with his flag-hoisted signal in 1914, just as well as he did in 1812, as long as he wasn't mostly blind in 1914, of course, end quote. The goal here was to make a reference and joke to two facts of Nelson's career. The first was his disobeying of orders at the Battle of Copenhagen, where he said he couldn't see the signal to retreat after using his blind eye to look through the telescope. And the second was the reference to the fact that by the end of his career, Nelson was having eyesight problems in his one eye that could still see. Unfortunately, the reference was far too obfuscated, and the wording too horrible. And of course, Nelson wasn't even alive in 1812, having died in 1805 at the Battle of Trafalgar. So basically, I botched that whole sentence. And thank you to David for pointing it out. This week, for the first time in over three months, we find ourselves back on the Western Front. This episode begins a series of episodes on the fall offensives by the French and British forces in France, and it will be the largest and last offensive of 1915 for the Entente forces. Since it has been a while since we were on the Western Front, let me just take a moment to recap what has happened in 1915 up to this point. Over the first six months of the war, the French and British had attacked several times in the Artois and Champagne regions of France. These attacks, while heavily supported by men in artillery, were never very successful. The German defensive lines and tactics continued to improve, faster than the Entente's offensive abilities, so the result were attacks that aren't too dissimilar to what we discussed last month on the Italian front. The forces would attack, maybe make some success, only to be thrown back by the next set of counterattacks. These attacks did have impact outside of the battlefield, though, and that is where we will start our episode today, with a discussion of how the failures of the spring had affected France and its military leader, Joffre. 
The failures of the spring attacks in Artois was just the last in a long line of offensives that Joffre said would win the war before they didn't. These repeated promises and failures began to have an effect on the political leadership of France, and they became more and more vocal in their concerns with the war and how it was being ran. I think when I say those words, the first thing that modern people think is that they were probably angry that Joffre was attacking too much, but this wasn't universally the case. On June 22nd, in the French government, they commented that they were disappointed that Joffre had stopped the attacks in Artois after so much blood had been spilt. They thought he should just keep attacking. On June 23rd, President Poincaré, Prime Minister Viviani, and Minister of War Millerand attended a meeting with Joffre and his most senior generals. The general purpose of this meeting was to discuss French strategy and operations, but the political leaders were there because they were concerned. Criticism of the army within the government was growing, and because of this they wanted to confront Joffre about the problems the army was causing. Their top criticism wasn't about how he was leading the war, or what the armies were doing, but instead the fact that he kept promising a huge breakthrough, and every time he promised it and it failed, it was very harsh news for the leadership back in Paris. They suggested that it would be better to simply say that the attack was designed to achieve a smaller objective, and if it turned into something more, that would be fantastic. One thing that both the army and the politicians were agreed upon was that the offensives had to continue. I believe this is a very important point to remember, when the military leaders during the war are criticized so strongly for the constant attacks and their subsequent failures. They weren't standing upon their mountain screaming to attack when everybody else disagreed. Everybody agreed that attacks should continue. Around this time, the British leaders were pushing for a defensive on the Western Front, while moves were made elsewhere. But if there was one thing that all of the French leadership agreed upon, it was that staying on the defensive on the Western Front was a very bad idea. Poincaré would say, quote, All believed that if we remained on a pure and simple defensive, we will expose ourselves to massive and incessant attacks, end quote. It's funny that he should say this in 1915, though, because it's probably one of the few times in the war when it absolutely was not true. In June, almost all excess German resources were in the east, hammering away at Russia. The earliest that they could have been back and attacking in the west would have been very late in the year. While the French government was growing weary of the constant promises of victory, Joffre, in his own personal documents and memoirs, seems to also be starting to doubt whether or not the decisive breakthrough he had been searching for was still possible. In general, Joffre started to believe that the most that could be hoped for were significant gains along the front in specific locations. He also begins to use a word around this time in official communications that would come to define the struggles of 1916, and a word that would come to define the war as a whole. Dictionary.com gives the definition as, quote, a wearing down or weakening of resistance, especially as a result of continuous pressure or harassment, end quote. And the word is, of course, attrition. Joffre would begin to use the word during the summer of 1915, with the important caveat that he believed that the French would win a war based on attrition, but they couldn't do it alone. If attrition was to work, then it was important for France to take advantage of her greatest strength, her allies. Large offensive operations had to be launched everywhere, as often as possible, and with the greatest amount of effort. This constant pressure upon Germany and Austria-Hungary would slowly but surely wear them down. 
This is a view at a very high level, but he was also at this time thinking about attacks on a smaller level as well. By the time the war was a year old, the French had a lot of failed attacks to look at to try and determine why they failed, and one of the big reasons that Joffre pinpointed was, quote, If our infantry is stopped, it is less because their offensive force is finished than because the exploitation of their initial success had not been pushed far enough and fast enough, end quote. This was an astute observation, and looking back we can see it was a big problem, and would be for the entire war. Offenses were making initial gains, all of the attacks we will talk about over the coming weeks will, but they just weren't able to keep it going. It would be years before anybody would solve this problem. During the long summer, another fact was in play in the French high command that urged action beyond what was good for France and what France needed. That fact was the Russian situation. Joffre would write in his memoirs that while some of the members of the French General Assembly were criticizing him for attacking too much, the Russians were constantly criticizing him for not attacking enough. All of these factors, the failures of the attacks, the feeling in some parts of the General Assembly that there were too many attacks, and the constant promises of victory, meant that as the summer of 1915 was coming to an end, the political situation was less stable than it had been since the war started. The Viviani government, that had been in the leading role and strongly supported for over a year, was beginning to lose that support. The ramifications of this subtle degradation of support and the eventual fall of the Viviani government are coming, and we will discuss it in a later episode. With the political situation sorted out for now, let's do a quick review of some of the lessons that the French had learned during their attacks since the beginning of the war, or at least the lessons that they thought they had learned. The first was that the attack needed to be on a wide front. If they attacked on a single axis, the German response could also be on a single axis, which made it far easier for the attack to get bogged down. If the goal was to push a significant distance through the line, the rupture created by the first attack had to be large enough that it couldn't be closed off quickly. If it was wide enough and deep enough, the Germans wouldn't be able to seal it off quickly enough, and might have to withdraw on an even larger front because their positions would be compromised. The next lesson, that we have talked a bit about already, was that the French had to find a way to keep the momentum of the attack going by quickly feeding in more men and material. Getting the enemy off balance with the first hit was easy. Keeping them off balance while the attack moved forward, especially once the infantry moved beyond artillery cover, was the hard part. The third lesson was that, finally, Joffre was starting to believe that the small actions along the entire front, when large attacks were launched, were no longer necessary. Since the beginning of the war, when attacks were launched anywhere on the front, the really big attacks like the one at Artois or Champagne earlier in 1915, small and theoretically supporting attacks were launched everywhere. The idea was that it would keep the Germans from bringing in reinforcements. The smaller attacks hadn't achieved this goal, since they didn't have their resources to pull in a lot of German troops. So instead, moving forward, all French resources would be concentrated into just a few attacks without any of these sideshows. This was really good news for most of the French armies, who, since the beginning of 1915, had been attacking pointlessly while the other efforts were going on at Artois and Champagne. Those were then the lessons that Joffre, and most of the French generals, had taken from the previous attempts to breach the German line. So what would they do with these lessons? 
Joffre was aware of the support problems beginning to develop in Paris, and there was also pressure from the government that he should consult strongly with his generals before ordering attacks. While Joffre wasn't keen on political interference, he did bow to this request. Joffre went into the initial planning stages of the next offensive, wanting an attack on a broad front. But before deciding when, where, or how, he consulted his generals, specifically Foch, Castelnau, and Patan. He consulted via letter sent on June 27th to the generals, with particular focus on Foch and Castelnau, who were the commanders in Artois and Champagne respectively. In the letters, he asked for their opinions on launching attacks in their areas of operations. He wanted some details on what the generals would plan to accomplish in the attacks, and what benefit the results would bring to France. Foch and Castelnau had roughly the same number of troops and guns, so they should be able to make their case for why their area should get focus on reasonably similar grounds. Both Foch and Castelnau knew that it would likely be one that would be launching the priority attack, while the other one would be a large supporting attack. So mostly, they were arguing for priority in reinforcements and supplies. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. At the Explorers Podcast, we plunge into jungles and deserts, across mighty oceans and frigid ice caps, over and to the top of great mountains, and even into outer space. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventurers from throughout history. So come give us a listen. We'd love to have you. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. Foch wrote back two lengthy responses to Joffre's request. Both of them reiterated the same points of discussion from earlier attacks. If he could capture just a few small pieces of Vimy Ridge, it would be easy to push the Germans off of the rest of it. That would be the entire purpose of the earlier attacks in Artois, and would be the focus of the next set. Foch also always liked to point out that his objectives were relatively close to the French lines, whereas in Champagne, the offensive would have to advance much further before reaching a truly critical objective. Foch advocated for smaller attacks with less grandiose objectives that could be quickly captured and then held against German attacks. The objectives would always be within the range of French artillery for protection. Foch believed that this method would result in the best results with the fewest number of casualties. Foch did put in a caveat in his plans, and that was the fact that he would be unable to launch his attacks in the north without British support. 
the British line met forces just north of the French Second Army, and it was imperative that they attack to keep the Germans from concentrating all of their reinforcements on Vimy Ridge. We will talk about the British in a few moments, and the long line of discussions necessary to bring them into the French plan. Castelnau wanted large attacks on a large front. These attacks he believed would catch the Germans off guard and keep them off balance, which would allow the French to capture a lot of territory quickly. Castelnau expressed these feelings in his letter back to Joffre, in, pl- in the plan that, in the end, looked almost identical to the earlier attacks on Champagne, another attack through Perth and onward to the plain and railways beyond. In these two generals, you can see another example of what I believe to be the most important French problem in 1915, a lack of imagination and originality. The same objectives with the same attacks over and over again. Joffre had also reached out to Patan for his opinion on what to do next. Patan, the junior member of the list, favored a more defensive approach, with some small attacks like Foch was advocating for but only when it was in an area of real importance. He strongly believed that they shouldn't try and just capture some ground to capture some ground. It should always have a purpose. Jean wasn't a huge fan of these opinions, particularly when Patan weighed in that he thought that large attacks in either Artois or Champagne would simply be a waste. Patan believed that the war was transitioning into a war of attrition, and laid out what he thought that type of war should look like in this quote. Quote, the war has become a war of attrition. There will be no decisive battle as in other times. Success will come eventually to the side that has the last man. The only objective we should seek is to kill as many Germans as we can while suffering a minimum of losses. End quote. Knowing the course of events of what is to come, and especially in early 1916 at Verdun, Patan was ahead of his time. Earlier in this episode, I mentioned that even Joffre was beginning to suspect that the war was becoming one of attrition, but he disagreed with Patan on how best to prosecute such a war. While Patan believed in these small attacks that would sort of bite off little pieces of the front that were important, Joffre believed that the large attacks were the best way to trade German lives for French deaths, at the best ratio. While Joffre had been asking his generals what they thought, his staff was also conducting studies of their own to determine the best course of action, and once again, just like they had at the beginning of 1915, they came to the conclusion that the best place to attack was in Artois and Champagne. Robert Dowdy, the author of Pyrrhic Victory, believes that this conclusion to the investigation was more than a little bit of Joffre pandering. I agree with this assessment. His staff was essentially just reinforcing Joffre's own opinions on what he wanted to do. In preparation for the attack, Joffre told Foch and Castelnau to prepare strong positions and to limit action on their fronts as much as possible, for the time being anyway, to try and provide the men with some rest before the next phase of the war began. The date for the attack was set for August, and the objective of both armies in Artois and Champagne would be an old refrain. In the north, the 10th Army would attack against Vimy Ridge. It would be a secondary attack to what was happening in Champagne. In the south in Champagne, the objective would be the village of Perths, and then on to the railway junctions behind. Due to various delays, it would push back to September, and then all the way to September 25th. Part of the plan, an integral and important part of the plan, was the British. And the French had managed to get them on board with the idea. 
So before we begin the battle, let's take a look at how that was accomplished. Joffre began the process of getting the British involved in the fall offensive months before the attack began. Way back in June 1915, he started laying the groundwork by writing three letters to France's Minister of War, Millerand. In the first letter, he asked to be given overall command of all Allied troops, French, British, and Belgium. This would be a common request by French leaders, but wouldn't end up happening until 1918, when the war was almost over. The second letter to Millerand complained, for probably the hundredth time, about the British sending resources to Gallipoli instead of the Western Front. The third letter outlined and emphasized the fact that Sir John French was also opposed to the use of resources at Gallipoli, and could be a useful ally for Joffre and Millerand when trying to get the British to increase their commitment on the continent. This would come into play at a meeting in July. On June 29th, Joffre sent a letter to Millerand, requesting he arrange a meeting of all of the Allied commanders from all nations at the French headquarters of Chantilly sometime soon. Kitchener was scheduled to be in France the first few weeks of July, so it made sense to arrange a meeting during that time frame. The meeting would be scheduled for July 7th, and every country allied with France would be represented, with Russia, Belgium, Britain, Italy, and Serbia all sending representatives. We've actually talked about this meeting twice already from the Russian and Italian perspectives, so it'll be interesting to hear about it from the British and French. The conference was attended not only by military representatives from the countries, but also by civilian leaders like British Prime Minister Asquith and Millerand. Joffre began the meeting by outlining what he saw as the priorities and secondary priorities for the Allies, with the Western Front, the Italian Front, and the Russian Front being the three most important. All of the representatives agreed to trying to have everybody join in a joint action which would increase the pressure on Germany and Austria, and after this agreement was noted, Joffre began to unveil his plans for his large fall offensives. At this meeting, he believed that the attacks would be launched in late July, but as we have discussed above, this would get pushed several months to September. Joffre was very careful in his choice of words during this meeting, as were all of the French representatives. They were so careful because they, and everyone else at the meeting, knew that the French had been making some pretty hefty promises before their spring and summer offensives. Words like breakthrough and war-winning were used to describe these earlier plans. So Joffre, Millerand, and all of the French in attendance believed that it was important that it appeared that these plans were aiming for something different. Essentially, they wanted to make sure that nobody got the idea that the French were just replaying the same failed plans over and over again, which was pretty much exactly what they were doing. On the second day of the conference, most of the political leaders departed, and the military leaders stayed behind to discuss the details. Joffre and French went into a private meeting to discuss how they might work together. They both agreed that offensive preparations should continue for the Western Front, and Joffre unveiled his more detailed plans for the next attack to Sir John French. French agreed to them in principle, and he agreed that the British should take some part. After this private meeting, they both put increasing pressure on the British leadership in London to send more resources to France to assist in the upcoming attacks. At this point, it was a constant struggle for French to keep more troops from being sent and moved on to Gallipoli. 
This was in July, and it was right before the plans for the Great August Offensives on the peninsula that were being developed and requests for war men for the attacks kept coming in. The best tool that Joffre and French had was the argument that Russia needed help, and as the attacks in the east grew stronger, this argument continued to gain importance and weight. Across the Channel in London, most of the leaders believed that it would be better for the British to wait until 1916 to launch any further large operations. By the time the New Year came around, some of the troops recruited after the war started would be ready for combat, and it would give the British manufacturing time to catch up with the army's demands. While this tug-of-war for British resources continued, the temporarily united front of Joffre and French began to unravel. As Joffre got down to the brass tacks on exactly what he wanted the British to do in the fall, some disagreements developed. Joffre wanted the British to attack at La Bassie, while French wanted the British to attack further to the north. French thought his troops would have a better chance further to the north, but as they got further away from Foch's army, they would be less and less of a help to the French. With this disagreement unresolved, there was a meeting on July 17th between French and British generals to go over the general plan for the attacks, and there was resistance from General Haig. Haig would be the primary commander of the British forces used for the attack, and when he began to hear the details, he raised several objections. The two most important would be that the ground he was supposed to attack over was far too open, which would result in his troops being exposed. He also didn't think he had enough men to meet the objectives set in front of him. But even with these objectives from the commander on the scene, the plan remained the same. By mid-August, a big milestone was reached when Kitchener was talked into agreeing with the planned offensive and gave it his support. It was important to get Kitchener's buy-in for the offensive because he was the man most able to get the resources that Haig would need. It appears, however, that Kitchener never really believed that the offensive would be successful, but he felt that he had to bow to the commander at the scene as to what was the best course of action. When Churchill strongly complained to Kitchener, Kitchener would reply, Unfortunately, we have to make war as we must, not as we would like to. The extra resources that French hoped Kitchener would provide wouldn't just be used for the attack but also to take over more of the line from the French. The French had a lot of resources, but not infinite, and getting the British to take over more of the line was important, because it let the French give more resources to Castlenau and to Champagne. The piece of the front that the British would take over would be near a river in northern France that you you may have heard of. It was a river that was called the Somme. This area, south of Arras, was being held by the French Second Army that would be moved to Champagne, and it was thanks to the creation of the British Third Army that the troops were available to man the line, and they would move in during the summer of 1915. And in this one movement, the battlefield that would become so infamous in 1916 was, for the first time, occupied by British troops. These troops also included the first appearance in France of the New Army or Kitchener Divisions. These men were raised after the start of the war and were very, very green, but they were trained enough to take up space in what was supposed to be a quiet sector. The exact area where the British would be attacking, thanks to the continual objections of Haig and the waffling of French, wasn't nailed down until fairly late in the game. 
Jean Ferdinand eventually managed to bring French over to his side, and the British would attack at Luce, on ground that was strategically completely worthless to the French, but also in an area where they could provide great assistance to the French. Around the middle of August, French wrote a letter to Joffre that put Joffre in a panic for a few days. The letter was a bit cryptic and was interpreted to mean that French was no longer going to give his full commitment into the attack. This got both Joffre and Foch very excited, and they quickly wrote a letter to Kitchener to complain. On August 22nd, French reaffirmed his commitment to Joffre and reconfirmed that he would be ready to start the attack the second week of September and that he would be using all of his previously agreed-upon troops. It doesn't appear that French ever actually considered backing out. It's just one of those unfortunate moments where written communications were misread. So as the calendar moved into September, the British and French were putting the polishing touches on what would be their largest coordinated battle so far. I will end this episode with a bit of a preview of what is to come. So on the topic of the plans for this attack and for the battle itself, I will quote the official British histories when they say that Sir John French was, quote, compelled to undertake operations before he was ready, over ground that was most unfavorable, against the better judgment of himself and General Haig, end quote. I hope you enjoyed this episode and have a great week.